Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all of our LARB readers. My name is Eric Newman, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me is my co-host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. Hi, Eric. And today we are very excited to speak with Brian Fogel, director of Icarus, a new documentary on Netflix about the Russian Olympic doping scandal. Now, I actually wasn't on this interview, I was traveling at the time, but you and Kate, fellow radio show host, Kate Wolf, were there. So how was it? It was really interesting. Both of us or neither of us could really believe the documentary that we had just watched. Brian Fogel essentially documented himself doping for an amateur bike race. And that documentary then transforms into a completely different story, which is a story about a Russian scientist who essentially orchestrates the doping of all Russian Olympic athletes for many years. Well, it's a real go big or go home situation. It, yeah, as is um, the Russian want. Let's go big or go home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get to that interview. Let's do it. So we're here today with Brian Fogel. Brian Fogel is a playwright, author, producer, and film director. His off-Broadway comedy, Jutopia, received critical acclaim in 2003 and was later adapted into a book and feature film. His most recent documentary, Icarus, premiered at Sundance in January this year, where it won the Orwell Special Jury Prize. The film is streaming now on Netflix, and it's in theaters in New York and Los Angeles. Thank you, Brian, for being here. Thanks for having me. This movie is really, like, unbelievable on so many levels. I'd love for you, before we get into it, to describe it, just for listeners who haven't seen it in a succinct way, but I do have so many questions for you. Well, the film is called Icarus, and it basically charts this three-and-a-half-year journey that essentially I started out to make a film kind of in the vein of Supersize Me, except in the world of performance-enhancing drugs. And when Lance Armstrong had essentially confessed, the reality behind that confession was that this guy, to this day, has still passed 500 anti-doping controls clean, meaning that he's never been caught. And so there was an idea to the world that Lance had been caught. And when I would talk to friends and people that were following it, they believed that he had been caught. But behind the scenes, it was the equivalent of getting Al Capone on tax evasion. This guy was never caught. The only reason why he finally confessed is a criminal investigation, a federal investigation is launched into him in which they get all of his teammates who did the exact same thing as he did and also didn't get caught to rat him out in exchange for their own immunity. And this ultimately forces his confession. So this is January 2013, and I'm looking at this, and I'm going, wait, wait, wait. Not what is wrong with Lance Armstrong and what is being presented in the media as this massive victory for the anti-doping movement, but I'm going, what is wrong with the anti-doping movement that 14 years into testing the most tested athlete on planet Earth, they can't catch him? Mm -hmm. And I'm basically going to myself, this system's a fraud. And if you can't catch Lance, who can you catch? And so I start getting obsessed with the idea of showing that the system doesn't work. And I decide that I'm going to basically turn myself into a human guinea pig, dope myself, do this 
an incredibly hard race in Europe the first year clean and then go back the next year fully doped, but with the advice of a scientist and a guru to help me evade detection. And if I'm able to evade detection and also do a lot better in this race, essentially I'm going to show to the world that this system doesn't work and forget about cycling. What does this mean for every other sport on planet Earth? Mm. So that was the original premise. But then about a year, two years into this journey of what I thought was going to be this film, the scientist who I am working with, Dr. Gregory Rutchenkoff, who runs the, at the time, runs the third largest anti-doping laboratory in the world, the WADA Moscow Laboratory, the World Anti-Doping Agency Laboratory. He's doing all the testing for all Russian athletes across all sports in Russia. He had also just done the testing for the Sochi Winter Games. He was at London, he was at Beijing, and he was also going to be doing all the testing for next year's World Cup being held in Moscow. And this guy, as it turns out, ends up being essentially the mastermind behind the single biggest sports scandal in history that changes all of Olympic history, that essentially calls into question every single medal won in all Olympic games across all sports because he was overseeing a state-sponsored program in Russia that was essentially doping the entire Russian national team and concealing their tests and positives through a variety of methods. And essentially, an investigation gets launched. He flees Moscow because he's being told that he's going to be killed. And I then work with him for seven months and bring all of his evidence to the New York Times. And that sets off this incredible ongoing domino series of events. Wow. It is kind of unbelievable to watch, which I am sure you've heard before. So essentially what we also see in the progress of the story is a man whose life begins to fall apart, right? He has to flee. His life appears to be in danger from, he says, both WADA and the Russian government. What was it like for you witnessing that and being very much a part of it and sort of also being in the front lines of protecting him in some way? When I um, sit back now and watch the film, which actually we only truly finished in June because we got to continue to work and craft it after Sundance, which was an amazing opportunity as a filmmaker to have your film at Sundance and then be able to continue to work on it for another four months. But when I sit back and watch the film, it's hard for me to even take in and believe what I went through and what this process and journey was. When it was happening, basically from this November 2015 to when I bring him into protective custody with the FBI and Department of Justice in mid-July of 2016, it was a daily crisis management and it was scary, it was shocking. And I quickly came to the realization that I was essentially working with the equivalent of Russia's Edward Snowden, as the world news media has now picked up on. They've all labeled him as essentially Russia's Snowden. And I was realizing this for this period of about seven months, and it was very, very tense and very surreal. And the craziest part of it 
is that during that period of time, it was really no longer about making a movie for me. It was that I had a friendship, like a true friendship with this person that developed over two years. He had been in my home. I had been in his home in Russia. We had spent hundreds of hours Skyping and on telephone calls. And he had helped me in the first two years of my journey where essentially I was the subject of the film and that he was essentially a secondary character. And then all of a sudden, the film takes this 180-degree pivot, but not the film, really. Our real-life events take this 180-degree pivot. And I go from essentially being the subject, and he's my advisor, to me essentially becoming his advisor and his protector and his confidant and the only guy in the world that he basically trusts with his life to help him tell this story. Mm. And that was um, an incredible responsibility and burden. And it was a lot. I want to go back just to the beginning when you are trying to show that doping, you know, that doping tests don't really work. And because you had approached someone in the United States about working with you to kind of trick the system or show right. how easy it is to trick the system. And they had ethical concerns about doing that and then they put you in touch with Gregory. And I think it's kind of alluded in the film that perhaps this person in the United States knew some of what had been going on in Russia. I really do want to get to also the experience of doping and what it felt like and how it changed your performance and if it had other tolls on you physically. But I'm also curious, how long into the process did you start to suspect that there was something going on with Gregory in Russia and how much do you feel like he really wanted to share the information or how did it come out? Like maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Meaning how did the story come out that he wanted to share with me yeah. what he had? Yeah. Was it a subtle, I mean, was it more over time or? Well, it was, when you see the film, essentially there's this German television piece that breaks in December 2014 and that's exactly about the time that I start doping. And this investigation goes on for 11 months between December 2014 and November 2015. And during that time, I'm doing a lot of poking behind the scenes. And a lot of those interviews you see in the film was essentially me going to these people that I knew were investigating the Russia, possible Russian scandal and Gregory. And they had no idea that I knew Gregory. They had no idea I was doping. But I just went to them as a documentary filmmaker and said, hey, What's going on here? What's at stake here? What are you finding? What do you think this means for the future of sport if this is proven true? And so I was planting that foot, or that seed, but that wasn't my main focus, but that was kind of my backup, kind of like knowing that this was going on, that I would be naive not to be following that while it was going on. But to Gregory... I also made a decision that it wasn't my job to become an investigative journalist. I had a mission and I had set out what that was and what I'd gotten financing around this film to do. And Gregory was helping me. And it was fascinating and amazing enough that this guy who's doing all the anti-doping testing for Russia is agreeing to dope me on camera, show me how to beat the system, smuggle my urine to Moscow, and invite me into his laboratory. That alone was crazy <laughs> enough that I said to myself, gee, I'm, I'm not going to start, you know, poking into Gregory. And because of that, we were able to develop this friendship, this trust. And so during this period of 11 months, I mean, I'm asking him 
and he's constantly going, WADA's inspecting, WADA's checking, there's this investigation. But I think because of the Russian system and, you know, essentially what is still in many ways a totalitarian state in regards to media and what the public is able to get, and certainly you see the Russia's continued response to this evidence, that I think he also believed that it would just go away, that Russia was too big, that it would go away. So, you know, when this investigation breaks in November, it's still widely like allegations. It's centered on track and field. It's not across all sports. And they don't know about the urine swapping. They don't know they've been breaking into bottles. What they do know is that there's whistleblowers, a couple whistleblowers that have fled Russia. And they're saying that there's a state-sponsored system and Gregory is basically overseeing it and he's the guy. But that report was enough that Gregory had to resign. The lab was shut down, suspended by WADA. And they announce that the IAAF announces that they're banning or suspending Russia from all world track and field competition until they can figure this out. And so that sets off essentially this grenade, this, you know, pretty, pretty sizable event in which he has to flee his life. And then he comes to Los Angeles and it's only around a month later that I understand through all these conversations and conversations and conversations, and many of them we weren't filming. It was just about the trust at that point of the extent. And every day, what was so just kind of shocking about it was like another layer of the onion would peel back. And every day I realized how much bigger and how serious this was. And when he first gets to Los Angeles, he goes and buys a brand new phone and he buys a brand new computer. And I'm sitting there going to myself, really? You just spend a thousand dollars on an iPhone and you just bought a brand new computer and you have a computer. Is it really, you know, like I'm going, whoa, this is, and all that he carried with him was the backpack as he gets to Los Angeles. And all of a sudden, about two weeks later, I'm realizing why he, you know, had bought a brand new phone and why he bought a brand new computer. And then I'm realizing that he had brought all this evidence with him, essentially 1,700 documents of evidence and photographs and the proof of what had happened. And that began over about six weeks. And then the next six months was essentially, how do we bring this story public? How do we corroborate it? And how do we go into a place that if we sit down with the New York Times, this is beyond a reasonable doubt and that the next dominoes would then fall. But so it was a process, and through this process also, every day I realized that the film that I thought I was making was slipping further and further away, and all that footage that I had shot was basically not going to be used, because ultimately the film that I needed to make was unfolding. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. And now we have Eric Newman, 
our gender and sexuality editor, Larb, and he's going to give us a book recommendation. Eric, what book are you going to recommend? So this maybe feels like a less literate book recommendation because it's actually a photo collection. So the one that I'm recommending today is photographer Tom Atwood's recent book, Kings and Queens in Their Castles, which is basically shots of LGBT people, both celebrities and kind of regular folks who Atwood shot in their homes. So it's kind of a look at uh, what we might call like the queer interiors of gay people's lives. There's a couple of like photos that particularly stood out to me. I mean, one is NPR's Ari Shapiro, who's at home kind of, I think he's like washing lemons or something in his kitchen. And he's always delightful to look at, first of all. But also it's just interesting to see these people in their everyday lives. Similarly, there's uh, Don Lemon, the uh, CNN anchor. There's a photo of him looking not unglamorous because I don't want it to sound like it's unkind, but just looking like an average Joe, kind of crumpled on the phone in some beat-up cons on a balcony outside of his apartment. There's something deeply, like, humanizing about especially the portraits of celebrities. There's also a really great, and I'm also, like, a huge Bruce Valanche fan, but just to get to the kind of the idea of how quotidian a lot of the, like, the shots are, it's just Bruce Valanche standing outside of his apartment in a T-shirt and jeans holding two massive bags of groceries and looking like she literally just walked in from the car and she's ready to get into her house and cook some regular people dinner. <laughs> so that was, it was really, it's a very fun collection. That sounds great. What brought you to this collection? How did you discover it? It just randomly came across my desk. It's not like I was a big follower of Atwood's photography, but I had seen it and I was immediately grabbed by just the idea of the book, which is again, like photographing LGBT folks in their homes. And I just really liked that idea and the pictures themselves are really um, powerful and evocative. And is there a way in which you would characterize queer interiors that is different than non-queer interiors or different interiors? Yeah, I mean, that's it's interesting. In a sense, that's a, a question that kind of arises directly out of the book itself, right? That there mm-hmm. should be something distinct about the interiors of like gays and lesbians' homes or trans people's homes. I don't think so. If anything, there's a lot of clutter, which I think is true <laughs> with everybody. Um, it is. I mean, I think also my <laughs> husband is a real neat Nick. So seeing a lot of those photos with clutter everywhere was both Anxiety. profoundly in- affirming for me as a gay man, but also a little bit like uh, gave me some trauma because I was like, oh, my God, I really hope Dan doesn't see this. One thing that I was struck by was the sheer volume of books in the background. It's not true in all the homes, but in a number of the homes, there's kind of like books lining the walls, which Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's particularly a queer thing, but it was something that I was definitely very happy to see. I guess one of the things that could be kind of queer about those interiors is the, for lack of a better word, the kind of stage design of them all. Sometimes it's a little bit too much like this kind of neo-Baroque interior, but there definitely was a lot of emphasis that you could tell in many of the apartments and homes in terms of kind of creating a very creative space. And obviously the sheer number of them who were creative people, even if they weren't celebrities, kind of poets, writers, you know, the kind of creative force that they brought to the vision inside of their homes. Interesting. Is there one home in particular that you envied and wanted to move into? Hmm. Well, I felt like I could move into Leslie Jordan's home. There's a great photo of him just with a bag of chips next to an open 
dishwasher that literally looks like any suburban home kind of mid-1980s anywhere in the USA. So that felt very accessible. Uh, Oh, one home that I did really like is uh, you can't see too much of the outside, but it's George Takei's home. They have a wonderful photo of him with a massive amount of wrapping paper, just wrapping Christmas presents, which maybe that's a very queer thing. But the kind of deep woods in that home that you can kind of see around, like it's very dark. It feels very much like a craftsman, just absolutely gorgeous. Gorgeous. Well, this book sounds great. Would you tell us again what it's called and uh, the photographer? The photographer is Tom Atwood, and the new photo collection is Kings and Queens and Their Castles. Good title. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, and now back to our conversation with Brian Fogel. So did you think about getting rid of the first half of the film or scrapping it? Or it's obviously very relevant because you've, I mean, I think the first half of the film makes you question, well, is everyone doping? And I actually do want to ask you about your experience. What was it like physically to take these? What did you take and how did it affect your, did it affect your moods or the other well, outcomes? Of there, there's two things to that, you know, which is about the first 40 minutes of the film, I think at minute 40 or so. 45, it takes this spectacular turn, essentially, where all of a sudden you're in a life and death game, truly, and a man is escaping for his life. But those 45 minutes, which in many ways are the first film that I was going to make, but throughout that entire time, we're planting all these seeds and all these story threads, that if we had lost that, then the journey itself was not organic. Then it was just a news story or whatever you'd call it. And to me and my producers and I think Gregory and everything, it was this journey that started in a place totally different that ends in a place going straight to Putin. And I think that the movie as a narrative arc and as a piece of film is much more complete in that cinematic journey that you feel. So that was the decision that we had to keep the shell of that Mm -hmm. film intact because Mm -hmm. it made the revelations of what happened to me that much more compelling. I I also think it has a looking glass quality that you start to pass through, you know, that, that, or or even in terms of the drugs that you're opening a door, the doors of perception. And suddenly on the other side, you know, you come, you come across this insane scandal it, it does make sense, for sure, in that way. Yeah, in, in terms of uh, of taking uh, the drugs and the hormones, you know, I took uh, HGH, I took uh, thyroid, I took testosterone, I took HCG, uh, DHEA, EPO, erythropoietin, and all sorts of different vitamin injections. And there's a, kind of a, an interesting side story to this, that essentially everything that I was taking, which is being presented in the world as doping is the exact same thing that is being sold in the world as anti-aging and the fountain of youth. Mm. So there's this kind of real separation between in sport, it's doping, but outside of sport or professional sport, this is the fountain of youth. So as I was talking to all these doctors and scientists, 
Of course, all my friends were sitting there going, aren't you scared about what you're going to take? Oh my God, aren't you worried about the long-term side effects? Aren't you worried about cancer and this, that, and the other? Because that's what's been presented in the media. But then as I was talking to the scientists and the doctors, they were all telling me, yeah, no worries. You're fine. Don't worry about that. Just get your blood checked and you're going to feel great. You're going to feel better and you're going to recover and you're going to sleep better and you're going to have better libido and you're going to feel stronger and you... And, you know, you're going to feel like you're younger. And they were 100% right. Mm. So the issue to me is not the danger of these substances, because I can tell you the only side effects I had were 100% positive. Like when I was taking uh, HGH, um, my girlfriend would tell me that I smelled like a baby. And she would always know when I took it. And I think the reason why is because my body was making growth hormone which is what you make when, oh. you're, when you're a child as your body is recovering, repairing itself. So I had zero negative side effects, but the rules are if you're in professional sports, you can't take this stuff. So I don't advocate um, if you're playing in professional sports and your job is, and your contract says that this is against the rules, then you're entering into a code. You're entering into a a bond, an agreement that you're not going to take this stuff. But as to the danger of it, I'm not a doctor and a scientist, but I certainly personally felt nothing other than improved health. Something that I think your movie does very deftly is build that connection between something like sports and doping and the politics behind it, right? Because otherwise you may think, well, the two are not necessarily related. Why would the doping of somebody on a gymnastics team be related to a larger governmental structure. What's the link there? Well, I think that's a, an interesting link that we don't look at in Western society or the U.S. and in Western Europe. And, and the reason why is that sport in this country is privatized, meaning mm -hmm. if you want to be a gymnast, and even if you end up being a gymnast on the U.S. gymnastics team, the United States government is not paying you. You have to get sponsors, you have to get backers, you'll get a contract with Wheaties or Nike or whatever else, and that's right. ultimately how you're paying to be a gymnast, or you have wealthy parents, or a coach takes you under his wing, and most of these athletes in, let's say, the United States and Europe, you know, you generally are working second jobs or come from families that have money that can afford to allow you to train, and then you get sponsorships or you get hired by a professional team, like a Major League Baseball team or whatever, to play for them. So it's not a state system. In Russia, all sports is under the ministry. So what that means is that sport is a government operation in Russia. And all the Russian athletes across all Russian sports are actually being paid salaries by the Russian government to represent Russia and compete. So it's a very, very different system. So in Russia, you're essentially, if you're a professional athlete, you're an employee of the state. Mm. And so the state is essentially mandating what you do for your job. And as it had been mandated, basically since the advent of steroids, is that your job, part of being on the national team, if you want to be on the national team, is you're on our program and we are going to protect you as Mother Russia from being testing positive because we're controlling this system ourselves internally. So 
there's a kind of a very fundamental difference between, let's say, a state or government that is looking at this versus, let's say, an individual choice. And I liken the choice of, let's say, Lance Armstrong or or Barry Bonds or whoever these other athletes, Marion Jones and stuff, to essentially an individual sport, an individual choice, rather than the choice of a government. And, you know, and so to answer that question is that when you look at sport on a global level, George Orwell said that sport is essentially war without the weapons. And that is what these Olympic Games are. That's what international competitions and World Cup soccer are. That's even what, you know, Denver Broncos versus the New England Patriots are. This is Denver going to war with New England, and whoever wins gets the victory in their city, and all the people mm-hmm. come out and celebrate and parade, and you feel that in New England you are unbeatable. Mm-hmm. And on a global level, it's now Russia competing against China, and it's China competing against America, and it's beyond sports, it's politics. It's a nation, a power going into international competition on a world stage and asserting their dominance. And from that dominance comes national pride, comes political power, and in the case of Russia, according to Gregory, it was the reason why Putin went and attacked the Ukraine, because he had dominated those Sochi Olympics and his approval rating went up to 95%, and he had the love of the Russian people to back him for war. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say that the the clearest connection that we see in the film between, perhaps, sports and very active form of politics is the invasion of Ukraine and sports and the winning in sports as um, manifesting itself as a kind of like actual territory that Russia now rules. And Gregory in the film feels remorse after Putin invades Ukraine and feels uh, that he is perhaps responsible in some ways. Do you, did you see him over the time that you knew him flip his consciousness of, of, you know, that what he was doing was wrong or had to be brought to light? Um, did he, in these months that you were close with him, seem to go through a transformation or did it just seem like he couldn't bear to keep the secret any longer? I think it's, um, that's a complicated question because I think that in order to answer that question, you have to look at, again, that difference between a Western perspective versus perhaps that perspective of a lot of South American countries or Latin American countries or Eastern European countries, where the mentality of the economic system has always been suppression and the rich are the ultimate rich, and but the government is not working for the people. And so if you look at like a history of, of Russia, right, I mean, you go through Stalin and Lenin, and then the you know, and then ultimately the fall of communism, and basically trying to now assert itself and and as a world superpower on the global stage. But behind all of that is the Russian people have always been basically just trying to figure out how to get one more piece of bread. I mean, this is a country whose leaders have suppressed them for many hundred years of modern history, and so I think the mindset, at least for Gregory was, well, this is just what everybody does. Everybody does this. And and he came from a system where his mother was injecting him with steroids when he was 15, 16 years old, and this was normal. Mm-hmm. This was just par for the course. So there never was in his mind an anti-doping system. In his mind, it was just like, okay, there's technically an anti-doping system, but my job and what everybody else is doing is just figuring out how to get around it so we can win. 
Because if we win, we have jobs. And all of these athletes are fighting for jobs and they want a job. They want to be employed. So I think there's a different mindset there. But where Gregory's mindset completely changed was when it went from him being a scientist. And for most of his career, while he was in anti-doping, his real job was anti-anti-doping. And to that extent, he was developing essentially the venom and the anti-venom. He's developing tests that catch all these other athletes in the world, like his test for long-term metabolites, which basically increased the steroid detection window uh, so that other athletes would get caught. Well, at the same time, he's figured out the anti-venom, this drug cocktail that he's giving to the athletes that dissolves in alcohol so it doesn't get absorbed into the bloodstream and just passes straight out to evade the test that he had developed. So to him, that was just the cat and mouse science game of it, and everybody's trying to do it. But when it turned into fraud, which was he was no longer a scientist, now he was essentially there, as he calls it, their, their, their doggy bag. He was there to pick up the trash. And what that meant is now his job is basically to help break into these bottles and swap out dirty steroid urine for clean urine. And that's where it began to cross the line for him because it was no longer about science. This was just pure corruption and this was fraud. And between that and then his guilt that they went into Ukraine and then realizing when the, when the investigation breaks in November 2015 that he's disposable, that he's just a cog in the wheel, that he's just another guy at the ministry and ultimately, because he's not the ministry and he's working for Putin and Mutko and Nagornov, that he's going to be thrown under the bus and he's the first guy they're going to take out. And they would. I mean, if you now, if you see the film and you know what Gregory knows, there is beyond a question of a doubt. It's not even, it's not, to me, it's, it's 100% that had he not fled Russia, had he not brought this story public, and, had he, and it, was he not in protective custody, he would not be alive right now. Yeah, right. I grew up in Russia and went to school in Moscow for a couple of years when I was younger. Um, well, one, when I saw Gregor and his wife, uh, my, my partner and I laughed because they look exactly like my parents um, and exactly like what my parents look like when they're FaceTiming and sort of figuring <laughs> it out and all you can see is my father's mustache. Um, I hope he's, he doesn't listen to this. But uh, the complexity of the morality that is born out of that kind of the system that you describe, I think, is is really difficult to convey. I think I, I saw it and I understood it instinctively. I think if you're born into it, you understand it instinctively as a sort of partly survival tactic, right? You do what you do in order to survive in this system because otherwise it will crush you. And the heartbreaking thing that Gregory, you know, we see sort of Gregory discover is the system will crush you no matter what. Um, in some ways, it, it doesn't matter, right? But I was wondering, how how did you enter into that and and begin to sort of, it sounds like you you understand and, and sort of begin to sympathize with the complexity of well, of the kind the, of system that he was I, in? I think the 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 best analogy of that that anybody can read is uh, is 1984, Orwell's 1984, and the journey of Winston Smith, and these three stages of reintegr reintegration, of learning, understanding, and acceptance. And those three stages we latched onto in the film to basically tell Gregory's narrative journey, because not only um, is 1984 his favorite book, 
it had been his guidebook through life because that's how he was viewing the prism of a world through doublethink. Essentially saying one thing, doing the exact other, being doping and being anti-doping, being on two sides, and that ultimately, at the end of the day, the government is going to win. You are not going to beat the state. You are not going to beat the man. And I think, you know, that that was a, a very, very key thing that we latched onto, and that's why we use that as that narrative. And so at the end of a film, we go through this stage of acceptance. And what the acceptance is, is that here, despite this spectacular jaw-dropping scandal in its size and scope that has been brought forward, that has been proven, that has been forensically proven, that has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt by any human being who doesn't listen to InfoWars, right? <laughs> that here was this piece of evidence. And no matter what, the Olympic Committee and Russia was going to do what they always do, what was in their own best interest. In the case of the Olympics, they punted the ball and turned their back on every clean athlete in the world. They turned their back on the Olympic charter. They turned their back on the ideals that every athlete has, you know, believes when they go to the Olympic Games because that's what they're preached to. And in the case of Russia, they did what they've always done. Deny, 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 deny. Mm -hmm. And so that was that, that journey. And I think what's hard in a Western perspective is for us to understand that. I think it's why we're having such a hard time coming to grips with the fact that our election was hacked. We're having such a hard time coming to grips with this cycle of fake news because we take it for granted. We take the truth for granted. We take our democracy for granted. We take that, that these things can't happen for granted because our Western perspective doesn't allow that. Mm -hmm. So we're not able to go, wait, a foreign government hacked our election? How is that possible? We're, <laughs> we're impenetrable. But when you, when you see the mindset, and especially what is uncovered in this film, I think perhaps you can start looking into a different cultural mindset, not a right or wrong mindset, but a mindset of survival and how, and how you operate in the world, mm -hmm. which is clearly different from a Russian perspective than it is from an American perspective. Yes, right. Yes, well, Brian Fogel, thank you so much for being here today. And the film is really it's an unbelievable story. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. Thanks so much. We've been speaking with Brian Fogel and the film is Icarus out on Netflix now. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistant from William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Thank you.